So my friend uh, Bill ministers to uh, homeless people in our community, and this weekend he uh, brought uh, Bibles for some of these folks that he, he cares for, ministers to, and the Bibles were received with gratitude. Um, folks were saying, you know, oh, thank you so much. You know, God bless you for this gift. I got a picture of, a, of one. With, with this guy's permission, we will share this photo with you. So that's him with his Bible. But anyway, the, um, if, you, if you weren't familiar with the Bible, I'm done with that photo. Yeah, he, so he, um, if you weren't familiar with the Bible, you might say, um, a, Bible, a book is a kind of a strange gift to give to a homeless person, an ancient book. Of all the needs that a homeless person has, like an old book is probably not real high on the list. You know, they, wouldn't you rather give them food or uh, clothing or some other necessities? Um, and, and often when we minister to people in this kind of a situation, um, yeah, we do bring blankets and food and other necessary items, but we believe that the Bible is a necessary thing. Why? Because John 20, 31 puts it this way. It says, these are written, these words are written that you may believe it, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That this is, that the Bible is the account of how uh, God has, who God is, and how he came to this world, takes on human flesh to save us and to bring us life and new life and to show us what his kingdom is all about. And God's kingdom is, is different than the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of this world is, uh, the ways of this world are broken and deteriorating and, and sinful. And we can turn from that and turn from our own sin by faith and know God's way. We can have his Holy Spirit bring us new life. His Holy Spirit can uh, motivate us to live his way in this world. And that's why this book is so important, and that's why we want to share it with everyone we talk to. Uh, if you were, were going to visit this church, there's two things that I'd want you to experience, or what I would hope you would experience here. Well, one is I'd hope you'd feel welcome here. But I would, I would want you to say, hey, it seems like these people really love God. You know, they love to sing praise, and they seem to be really into it. They, they really want to worship God. I'd want you to see that. But I'd also want you to see that we really value God's word. A big chunk of our time together worshiping uh, is the, the reading and the preaching of the Bible, of God's word. And that takes the bulk of our time, especially today. I'm going to take a couple extra minutes. So i got a lot to unpack here. But we spend a lot of time on this because the Bible is living and active and true, and, it, um, it, it, it's proven itself true that all the prophecies in Scripture have been fulfilled, or they will one day be fulfilled, um, and so, because it's proven itself true. It tells us about our past, our present, and our future, and because of its truth, we, we are just um, committed to understanding and letting God use that in our lives. So now we come to Revelation chapter 20, I'm calling this sermon final things. These are the final things that will happen um, at the end of time and the, the second coming of Jesus to this world. And um, as much as we are confident in the Bible, as, as much as we love it, um, as much as we believe it, we're confident that these things will happen, including the return of Jesus to this world. But there is some debate about how it will all play out. Revelation chapter 20 is perhaps one of the most debated chapters in all of the Bible. I've never preached Revelation 20 before. This is my 
first time, this might be my last time. Um, but it's written, this book is written in this style of apocalyptic literature, so it's highly symbolic, and it's very intense, and Christians who all love the Bible and who believe it fall in different places in how they interpret the symbolism here. And I'm going to share some of those differences as we go along. So here we go, Revelation chapter 20, final things. We're going to look at the final years, uh, the final battle, and the final judgment. Let us pray. So Father God, I confess my, I confess my weakness and my own struggle with this text. And, and yet I believe it's your word, and I believe you want to use it to teach us something. So I pray that you would be our teacher. And I pray that you would keep me from error and that, you would, um, that your will would be done during this time, Lord. So we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true and living and active and useful, and may it be so now. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. All right. So we've got the final years, the final battle, and the final judgment. Now, we've already, as we've read through the book of Revelation, we've already seen the final battle in Revelation 16 and 19. We've had a glimpse of the final judgment of the nations in Revelation chapter 11. Pastor Dan preached that one. So we, we have these images already presented to us, and they're kind of overlapping images. Some of them are more intense. Some of them have more detail, but they're describing the same thing we see described um, over and, and over. And so when we put it all together, there, it's, hard, it's hard to take these images that overlap and kind of pull them apart and try to put them into some kind of strict chronological order, um, although some people try to do that. Um, but as we make sense of it, we can end up with different scenarios. But there are things that Christians believe on absolutely. So what we agree on is that Jesus will return to this world. That's not like a little add-on that some Christians believe, not some little sort of interesting tidbit. Jesus' return was central to his teaching, and it was central to the teaching of his followers. So this is not a little add-on. We agree that Christ will return, that there'll be a resurrection of the dead, that there will be a final judgment, that all evil will be defeated, and that there will be a new heavens and a new earth where all God's people will live with him uh, eternally with him. That, what I just described there is very clear in Scripture, and Christians from all different backgrounds agree on that. But again, there's some variation on exactly how and when exactly these things will happen. And we're going to take a look at this text here. So first we have what I'm calling the final years or the final thousand years. So look, let's look at verse 2 again here. It says, he, so this is the angel, he, he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who's the devil or Satan, bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be set free for a short time. So how do we make sense of this thousand years? Is this a literal thousand years? And so, some people believe that. Um, I, I will point out that throughout Revelation, every time we've come up against a number, it tends to be symbolic. So this number 1,000 is kind of a round number. It seems to be another one of these symbolic numbers. Uh, but there have been a lot of different approaches to how to understand this. There's three main approaches. I just want to go through them quickly here. 
the first approach to this thousand years is called the premillennial approach. So millennial, millennium means thousand years. Pre means before the thousand years, Christ will return. So premillennial, Christ returns pre, before the millennium. Uh, he returns, it binds Satan of his power, uh, the righteous dead are raised, and they establish this thousand-year kingdom on earth. And some believe that's a very literal thousand years, others maybe symbolic. Um, at the end of that, Satan reemerges to make one last effort to you know, have a war against God's, uh, God's people, and the devil's destroyed, and there's the, the rest of the dead are raised, and there's the final judgment. So that's one view. Uh, many people hold that view. Um, I don't. I find that view to be inconsistent with the rest of the Bible. And what I mean is that nowhere else in Scripture is that thousand years described. It doesn't amplify what Jesus taught or what the apostles taught. It's its own teaching just in this one place, and it doesn't, it doesn't fit real neat in that way. Um, this is actually the view of the end times that I was raised with. When I was a kid, I was raised in this kind of understanding of this is kind of how the end of the world will go. It fits into a broader framework of understanding the Bible uh, called dispensationalism, which I don't hold to, but this is a very, this is a popular view. It makes for great movies, by the way, and, and books. It's very, uh, it, it's, it's very intense to understand things this way. Um, although I don't. Uh, the second main view is what we call post-millennialism. So, again, this is after the thousand years that Christ returns after this thousand-year period, whether it's a literal thousand years or figurative. So what happens in the post-millennial view is that you would expect to see the binding of Satan and the reign of Christ in a more intense way for a period of time before his return. So there would be maybe more peace on earth or more... Uh, advancement of the kingdom of God and the gospel of Jesus in the world, and then once that's completed, then Christ will return. So we call that post-millennialism. There's a third view called amillennialism, and the amillennial view, which is kind of a misnomer because you think it means no millennium, but it's not really what it means. In the amillennial view, this thousand years is just simply the entire period of time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. So in this view, we live in the thousand-year reign of Christ now. This is the, the church age. And in a sense, Satan is bound, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, and just prior to the return of Christ, just like kind of at the end of this thousand years, Satan is in somehow uh, released, evil is let go in the world, and there's this big rebellion against God and God's people, and there's a final battle, and then the final judgment. Um, and so this is actually my view, and a view held by you know, many theologians and scholars. I'm somewhat confident in my view. Because there are people who are smarter than me that disagree with me on this. So I hold this view with a lot of humility to say, this is, this, I hold this view, but we could even in this church, we can disagree with each other on this, and it's not, um, it, it's okay. But the reason I believe this view is that I think it fits best with the rest of Scripture. And this is what we've been doing the whole time to interpret this, you know, all these wild images in Revelation. We looked at the book of Exodus to understand the bowls and the trumpets. 
We looked at the book of Daniel to understand what these beasts were. We looked at the words of Jesus to understand what the un, un, opening the seals on the scrolls. We've been, we've been looking at what already is in Scripture and see how it's in harmony. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 describes this almost identically, where at the, at, before Christ returns, there's going to be this great rebellion and evil in the world, and then Christ returns, and there's the final battle and the final judgment. It's remarkably identical to this, and it's hard to read this and say it's any different than that. I'm not going to go into all that, because some of you are already dozing off, and I see your eyes rolling back. <laughs> and, but but I, I feel like this really does make it, it, it's, it matches all of other scripture. I had a pastor once say to me, he said, well, not to me, he was preaching. He said, you know, pre-millennial, post-millennial, I'm a pan-millennialist. When Christ comes back, it's all just going to pan out. So why, <laughs> why do we get so uptight about this stuff? But I do kind of hold this, that, that we're living in this, this thousand year, this, this period of time, um, awaiting the return of Christ. But in what sense is Satan bound today? Because you see, look at verse 2. It says Satan um, was bound for a thousand years. Um, and after that must be set free. And, because it seems like if Satan is bound right now, I look at the world and say, like, Satan's probably, seems like he's having a pretty good time. You know, there's, there's so much evil and brokenness in the world. You know, how do you say he's bound? But look at verse 3. It says he's bound to keep him from deceiving the nations. So Satan can do a lot of things during this present age, but this deceit of the nations is no more since Jesus came to this world. And what I mean is this, that there's a sense that all the nations of the world were blinded or deceived by Satan um, and separated from God. But when, when Christ came, he... He came to show that God's kingdom is, and he came through one nation of people, just the Jewish people. And God's revealing his ways to this one nation. But from the time of Jesus on, it's not just for that one nation, it's for the whole world. So this world that had been blinded by Satan, is they're no longer blinded. Satan is bound in that sense. He's limited because he can't deceive in the same way. So when, when Jesus calls the Apostle Paul and gives him his mission and says, you're going to be uh, you're going to be a messenger to the nations, to the Gentiles. It's the, it's the same word, Gentile and nation. Look at Acts 26. So the Apostle Paul describes what Jesus said to him like this. He said, I will rescue you from your own people, that's the Jewish people, and from the Gentiles, the nations. I'm sending you to, to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This, this is what it's describing here, that since Christ, we're, people are going to be moved from this way of the world, the kingdom of Satan, they're going to be brought into the kingdom of God. And again, we see this in Romans chapter 1, where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. This good news message came through this one nation of people, but it's meant to bless the entire world, and that's what's going on here. Okay, so who are these, who are these dead who are raised in the first resurrection who are described here? Well, if this is the way we understand it, then these are, these are those who have died in Christ. These are... This is this first resurrection where you enter, in, that at your death you enter into eternal life with Christ. 
as, as it's described in Scripture, you know, we, we move from, when we die, we move from death to life, that we can receive eternal life, and it swallows up even death, is swallowed up by life. Jesus said, he who believes in me, even though he die, he will live. And he who lives and believes in me will never die. There's this, there's this new life, this eternal life that can be lived. So and this, is, this is important. Oh, this is where you tune back in. If I lost you like 10 minutes ago, this is your chance to like, pre-millennial, post-millennial, here it is. This is why it's important, verse 6. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second, death has no power over them. So you can summarize it like this. You're born once, you die twice. Or you're born twice, you die once. You're born your natural birth. You die. And there is a second death that comes after that. But for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, who are born natural, and then you are born again by faith in Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished, there's no second death. You may die in this world once, but there's eternal life on the other side. Born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. My friend taught me that a few weeks ago. It's great. So that's the final years. Next, we see the final battle. We see this in verses 7 through 10. So the image here is that when this age, this thousand-year age of um, you know, awaiting Christ's return, just before the end of that, um, Satan is unchained or unrestrained in some way, and then Satan works in the world to deceive people in such a way as to gather a coalition, an army against the people of God, and there's this final battle. This is very consistent with what Jesus taught. He said, yes, there's going to be wars, there's going to be uprisings and nations fighting each other, uh, and then he would return. So it's going to be really bad in those days. Um, that, that's kind of an understatement, but it's going to be bad. And, there's, and then Christ returns, and there's this final battle, and Satan is just defeated. We've already seen this again in Revelation 16 and 19. This is just different descriptions of the same final battle, and you can read those. I'm not going to say much more about this, but what you do need to know, and what's important about this for us today, is that the final battle where evil is defeated reminds us that this world is not the end. One of the, one of the most common questions, and actually one of the hardest questions that people ask me as a pastor, they say, Pastor, why do bad things happen to good people? It's a good question. That's a hard question. And I don't know. that we, we look at the world and we see bad things happening to good people or innocent people, and then we see kind of evil people who are prospering when they probably shouldn't, who don't get punished for the evils of the world. They just get away with their evil ways. And um, we need to remember that there is a final battle where all evil will be destroyed, that God is going to make it right, that this is not the end. If, if that question came to me and said, you know, why do bad things happen to good people and there's no ultimate justice, I, I would be lost. But I can say, I don't know why it's happening today. And I don't know why God is making us wait till the end of this time, but it's coming, that there is ultimate justice. Now, we should seek to bring justice in our world where there's injustice. We should seek to bring healing where there's brokenness. But it's always going to be limited. It's always going to be frustrated. We, we, we should pursue it, but we always do it 
in the midst of that frustration, knowing that there, there will be a day where there's no more frustration, where all evil is, is dealt with ultimately by God. And the final battle reminds us that. So we've got the final years, the final battle, and finally, the final judgment. We've already seen this in Revelation 11. This is just a more detailed description. Famously, this is called the great white throne judgment, verse 11. I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. So we have, we have God on his throne and we have the, the created order kind of being displaced. Remember when Jesus talked about the end times? And we've seen it here in Revelation other places. There's this cosmic of upheaval. It's described like stars falling or the sun goes out or the skies are rolling backwards or it's just... What's going on is that the end of this age, this whole created world, which has been frustrated and cursed by sin, is being uh, replaced. It's being displaced, and it's being made new. And we're going to look at that next week. It'll be our very last week in Revelation. And some of you are smiling and amening that. But <laughs> we have one more week. We're going to see what that looks like, this newly made new heavens and new earth. And so here we have that happening. And verse 12 says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And again, this is consistent in Scripture. Hebrews 9 says people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. But there's two sets of books here. This is very important for us. And... and People are judged according to what's written in the book about their life and their deeds and what they've done. Imagine if we did that today here, and I had a record of, of your life, everything you've done wrong, everything you've ever thought that was wrong, and I put your sins up. I've got screens. I'm going to put them up on the screens. Not all your sins. I only have two screens. <laughs> Just your top ten sins. Five, five of them over here and then 6 through 10 over there, because I want the font to be sufficiently big enough for everybody to see the worst things you've ever done or thought. Imagine what that would be like. I mean, I can't do that, so just settle down. Some of you look really nervous. No, but it would be, because it would be embarrassing. You'd be very guilty. You would feel very guilty in front of this crowd. But this crowd is also, our sins are going to go up there too. So we'll be kind of gracious towards you to say, yeah, that's pretty bad, but you know, we're, I don't want to be too hard on you because I have to go next. Although number seven is a little weird. Like, <laughs> you know, but mostly, I'm with you. Here the image is this final judgment, and you're in this line, and you get up, and they got the books out, and the books have all that stuff in it that you've ever done wrong. And you're not standing before a bunch of other broken people. You're standing before a holy God. And Scripture teaches us, and we know this is true, that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. That nobody could stand there in that moment. That whatever's written in there is going to condemn you. So it's your turn. You get to the front of the line. They say, oh, welcome. <laughs> they turn to your part of the book. So let's see what we've got here. And they look down and say, whoa, that's strange. Your entry here seems to be blotted out, covered over with red ink, 
actually looks kind of like blood covering your record. I cannot judge you on what you have done in this life. I can't read it. That book is pushed aside. But there's another book. It's the book of life. That book's taken out. And that book has nothing to do with what you've done or haven't done in your life. It's just a list of names. The list of names in that book is just, it's just God's children. So let's see if we could use this. You flip through, and there it is, your name. So your name is here. On to life. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the good news. This is the gospel, that Jesus Christ, in your place, he takes your record and he covers it with the blood that he shed on the cross. That was the punishment that you deserved. He took it so that he can cover your sins and write your name in the book of life, that you can have new, abundant, and eternal life with God forever. That's our final things. Amen. So this leaves us with one question, though. Which books do you want to use when, when you get there? The one with all your stuff written in it or the one where your name is just written as God's child? Hebrews 8.12 says, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Psalm 103 says, As far as the east is from the west, that is how far he has removed our transgressions from us. Whatever this is going to look like, however, whatever order of events, however long it takes, you can be certain that your name is written in the book of life if you put your faith in God. Let us pray. Father God, I thank you for the, well, I, God, for the things we don't get completely. We thank you for the things that we do understand. We understand what you've done for us. We understand that you're offering us life that you offer us your grace. And for those who are confident that their name is written in that book, Lord, we give you all the glory. Lord, for those who are unsure, I pray that right now they would pray to you. God, I want my name written in that book. I thank you for Jesus. I want his blood, his sacrifice to just blot out and cover over and forgive me for all the things I've done, Lord. Give me that new, abundant, and indeed eternal life Come into my life and change me and make me new. We thank you for your grace and your love. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.